Well, during the COVID pandemic in 2020, uh, something very ironic occurred in the Krupp home. Uh, the Great Courses Channel gave us a free subscription, and predictably, uh, Brooke and Grant and I gravitated towards the history section. Uh, we enjoy that, and, and we were watching courses. And what made it ironic is that one day I came downstairs into the living room, and this was early in the pandemic. This is when there was stay-at-home orders, I was working from home, there were mask mandates, and we didn't know how severe the pandemic, how deadly the pandemic would turn out. There was uncertainty and concern. And I came down, and Brooke was watching the great courses on the Black Plague, which to me comes off like watching a documentary about airplane crashes when you're on an airline or something. It just, it just seemed kind of ironic. Now, in the end, Brooke was right because it ended up being oddly comforting to see that it can always be worse. And if you know anything about the Black Death, you know it could always be worse it, because the Black Death was the worst pandemic in all of recorded human history. Uh, it happened during the years uh, 1347 to 1351, and it swept across Asia, Europe, North Africa, and killed hundreds of millions of people. But one of the things that was tragic about the Black Death is that in many cases, it was misdiagnosed and mistreated by doctors. Of course, medical science was in its infancy back then. Uh, it was barbaric by our standards. And so what ended up happening is they would come up with concoctions of herbs, or they would do bloodletting closest to the infected area. And what ended up happening is hundreds of millions of, uh, hundreds of, millions of people died by the pandemic, but millions of people died unnecessarily because of the complications that the poor uh, treatment uh, and the bad diagnoses led to. Um, and the Black Plague and plenty of other medical examples serve to highlight this important reality. Diagnosis leads to cure. Uh, in order to properly cure a disease, you have to first properly diagnose it. If you, give the, if you, if you have a wrong diagnosis for a disease, uh, you end up either um, coming up with a treatment that's ineffectual at the least, or at the worst, coming up with treatments that are actually harmful in that situation. And the same holds true in the spiritual realm when we deal with diseases of the soul. Let me give you an example. If little Johnny uh, bonks another four-year-old on the head and takes their toy, how we diagnose that problem is very important. Um, if we diagnose Johnny's problem as low self-esteem, that's going to run in a very different direction than diagnosing Johnny as a sinner who needs a parent to discipline him and say no and have boundaries and in the long run lead him to the gospel. If the problem is simply his self-esteem, then affirming him and validating him are the answers. The two diagnoses lead in very different directions. And today we come to a new passage in Ephesians. The reason, I'm, the reason I'm opening with this illustration is because in the new passage in Ephesians we're coming to, uh, we get to listen in on how the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Now, his prayer for the Ephesians is actually a very positive prayer. It's full of thanksgiving. But when you get to the point where he's praying for their spiritual growth, I believe the Apostle Paul puts his finger on a pandemic he diagnoses a disease that afflicts all of us in the church. Uh, when you think about your own spiritual problems or the spiritual problems of your loved ones, what's your diagnosis? 
Well, when many of us have to face up to the facts, uh, there's a number of diagnoses that we can come up with in the church. One that's very natural, comes natural to human nature, is to say, it's not me, it's not me, it's not my fault, it was that other person or the situation I was in. Or another diagnosis we give sometimes is, uh, well, it's just a lack of resolve. I need to exercise more willpower. I need to be more disciplined. Or yet another diagnosis would be looking at that other person and saying, well, this isn't healthy, but they don't have all the resources they need. They don't have all the power they need. Now, when you think about those three diagnoses, uh, the Bible overtly condemns locating the logic of our sin outside of ourselves. And when it comes to the ideas of lack of willpower or lack of access to the resources we need, That's not the direction the Bible points in, in terms of our greatest problem. Uh, In Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, he's going to put his finger on the problem. Uh, See if you can spot it with me when we read the text. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 1, verse 15. Ephesians 1, verse 15. I'm going to read from verse 15 all the way down to verse 23 and see if you can spot what I'm trying to get at. Uh, In verse 15 of Ephesians 1, Paul says, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come." And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Dear Holy Spirit, as I attempt now to faithfully preach this text, give us the gift of illumination. Help us not just to understand it, but to embrace its truth and to love you, the Father and the Son, through it. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to come to the true knowledge of the triune God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What we just read together is the second of six very long sentences in Greek that compose Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And this sentence packs in so many thoughts that translated into the English language, uh, if Paul were a student of an English teacher, the English teacher would say, okay, use some periods, you know, have some sentences, use some periods to break up the thought. Uh, And so, we should probably call it, I should probably refer to it since we're translating it into English as a paragraph. And, And the main point of this paragraph is that we get to see a prayer for the spiritual growth of other people from the Apostle Paul. Now, what that brings up is this. It brings up not only the issue of prayer uh, that we need to talk about, but also how we pray for others. You see, prayer is an important element in the Christian life, and if you want to grow in your own prayer life, the best way to do it is by learning from the example of the godly men and women that we find praying in Scripture. I don't know if you've noticed it yet, uh, but the people in Scripture 
they pray a little bit differently than we do, and if I may be candid, I like their prayers better, right? We need to learn to pray like them, and so I would suggest to you that this prayer by Paul, one of the, one of the good habits I think we have in Protestantism is we look at the Lord's Prayer, and we see the Lord's Prayer as a template that teaches us how to pray, right? The disciples, Lord, teach, me how, teach us to pray, and He gives them a prayer that you can use uh, not just by rote, but as a template for prayer. Well, I would suggest to you we need to expand that category to include all the good prayers in Scripture. And so today, I'm going to use Paul's prayer as a model prayer. Um, I would suggest even using this prayer as a template or an outline in your own prayer life as you pray for others. And that also brings up this point, learning to pray for others is an important ingredient in how we learn to love others well. And that raises the question that when it comes to how you pray for others, what will you ask for? How will you pray for them? I'd suggest to you that this prayer by Paul offers a diagnosis of a spiritual problem that afflicts all of us, and it's a guide for how to pray about that problem. In this paragraph, Paul gives us reasons we should be praying for others, a pattern for how to pray for them, and even content that I believe we should be uh, copying as we pray for others. Let's look first at the reason for intercessory prayer. When I use the word intercessory is a big word in English. When I use the word intercessory or intercession, it just means making a request uh, to the Lord on behalf of someone else. What is the reason for intercessory prayer? Why should it be a regular part of our prayer life? Verse 15, Paul says, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. When Paul begins verse 15 by saying, for this reason, he's pointing back to his doxology of praise in verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1. So he's pointing back, and if you look back at that doxology of praise, the main theme of it was uh, the amazing grace of God that we get to experience through His eternal plan of redemption. So he's pointing back at that and saying, for this reason, I pray for you. Uh, and all these shared blessings that we have that Paul talked about in verses 3 through 14, they are ours by virtue of us being adopted as God's sons and daughters. And if we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God, that makes us brothers and sisters with each other. Uh, we have been put in a new spiritual family. When Jesus saved you, He didn't call you to follow Him alone. He put you in a family with brothers and sisters to help encourage you on your heavenly journey. And He didn't just give you the blessing of brothers and sisters that would be there to help you. He also intends for you to help them. Do you help your brothers and sisters in Christ by praying for their spiritual advancement? Or is your prayer life non-existent, and when it exists, it's focused on you praying about whatever crisis you're facing. If God were to answer every prayer request you've made in the last month with a yes, where, where he, he gave you what you wanted the way you were asking for it and with the timing you were asking for it in, just imagine with me for a moment, it's a pleasant fiction, right? If he said yes, it's not that God doesn't hear prayers, it's just that he doesn't say yes in his wisdom to everything we ask. Sometimes he says no or sometimes wait. Um, but if he said yes to everything you've prayed for in the last month, 
would it radically change the lives of everyone around you, or would it just change your life, right? But are you praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ and their spiritual advancement? I ask because you've been adopted into the family of God, and in this new family, one of the ways we love each other well is by praying for each other's spiritual growth. And Paul gives us a pattern for how we can pray. Notice at the beginning of verse 16, Paul says that he did not cease to give thanks for the Ephesians. And there's two uh, elements in the way he prayed that I want you to notice. First of all, he didn't cease praying for the Ephesians. Now, that does not mean that he prayed every waking moment for the Ephesian church. It was a figure of speech in the Greek language that was used even by people who, um, uh, who were uh, polytheistic, uh, people who prayed to the pantheon of the Greek and Roman gods in letters to each other. We have letters uh, from antiquity we can find where they talk about praying without ceasing for each other. And what they mean is that on a regular basis, they're consistently praying for this other person. That's the idea that Paul is getting at in 1 Thessalonians when he tells the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. So, the ideas would include, praying without ceasing would uh, include ideas like regularly praying for others, consistently praying for others, and even the idea of persistence. And by persistence, I mean this. You don't ask once and then drop it and move on to the next thing, but you keep coming back about the same thing that person needs. There, there's the idea of uh, regularity, consistency, persistence bound up in what Paul means by praying without ceasing. And then second, notice that Paul was balanced in how he prayed for the Ephesians. There were many flaws in the Ephesian church. There were also many dangers they faced at a, as a church. Um, but Paul begins with thanksgiving. Uh, remember, Paul had lived with these people for almost three years, Uh, Six years have now passed, but he's kept up with their spiritual growth, and he thanks God uh, for how they've grown in the faith. He's thankful for how they've persevered in the faith in the middle of a very hostile city. He's thankful for how they've grown spiritually. I'm sure in context here, nobody felt more responsibility for the Ephesians than the Apostle Paul. No one was more aware of the spiritual dangers they faced, and yet, it's not all just sober-minded prayer requests from start to finish. He begins with thanksgiving. There's thanksgiving here. There's affection. There's gratitude. Uh, there's fondness here. Uh, and this is one of the elements of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians that I was stung by this week. Um, if you go and you read 1 Corinthians, if you remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul has to confront the abuses going on in the Corinthian church. And it was, I mean, just if you just take the data of that church and imagine that the, the Corinthian church was in a, a town, the next town, D.C. area, and you had a friend who was thinking of going to that church, would you recommend it? I mean, no. The church was an absolute mess, and Paul begins the letter with an entire paragraph of thanksgiving for them. And I, I just feel like I look at the church and I'm like, I can't even, I can't come up with a sentence you know, and Paul's like, there's good there. You need to see it. I'm not, I'm not, not seeing it. I'm just not seeing it. Uh, but Paul sees the good that was there. He sees the grace of God already working in their lives. And so, we need to say this. Part of a balanced uh, life of intercessory prayer includes 
thanking God for the people you're praying for? Do you remember to thank God for the Christians you offer up requests for? While it's true that you pray for their protection and growth, while you're anxious about the things they face, do you also remember to thank God for that which is spiritually good and noble and beautiful about them? One of the reasons I think intercessory prayer can feel so burdensome and exhausting is because at times, if you're like me, you get into the bad habit, the rut, of only praying about problems and threats. Now, it is true that prayer does take some uh, discipline, right? You have to focus your thoughts. You have to put away things that are distracting. You have to carve out time. So, yes, prayer does take some discipline. I wouldn't deny that. But prayer was not meant to be exhausting. And if prayer is exhausting to you, it might be because you're doing it all wrong. When all you pray about are the problems you're facing and all that you're anxious about for the other people in your life, well, then prayer, yes, it, it becomes a burden. But when you combine requests by praying uh, with confession so that you get right with God for the things that have happened in the last 24 to 48 hours, and when you stop to just praise Him for who He is regardless of the chaos going on around you, and when you remember to return thanks, then prayer becomes, I think it can actually be refreshing. I think it becomes much less laborious. And so, returning thanks to God, thanking Him for the good that we see in others, it's an important part of a balanced prayer life of intercession. And I think Paul models that for us here. In the Apostles' example, we see both persistence in prayer, but we also see the giving of thanks, and those are both important in terms of our pattern of prayer. But as you'd anticipate, Paul doesn't just uh, stop with thanksgiving. There are issues to be discussed. There are things to be asked for. And so, uh, he says, verse 16, he uses this phrase that he's making, I'm making mention of you in my prayers. And again, that was a figure of speech in Greek for making a request of someone powerful on behalf of someone else. It's where I get, that phrase is where I get the idea of intercession from. And as you move into verse 17, you begin to see the content of what Paul is requesting for the Ephesians. You begin to see the content of the request he makes on their behalf. Look again at verse 17. Paul says, uh, he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So, in terms of his request, Paul begins by asking that God that He would give the Ephesians a certain kind of spirit. Now, the question is, what spirit is this? Well, there's only, three kind, there's only three ways the word spirit is used in the New Testament. It can be used for the human spirit, right, the, the immaterial part of us, our soul spirit. Uh, it can also be used of the Holy Spirit, but the Ephesians, are, they already have human spirits. They already have the Holy Spirit by virtue of their faith in Christ. So, the third way that the New Testament uses the word spirit is to speak of a disposition, if you will. Uh, a good example would be Galatians 6.1, where Paul says, Brethren, even if anyone is entangled in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Right? That's what he's getting at here. Now, to be clear, this 
disposition, this spirit of wisdom and revelation, it is impossible without the Holy Spirit working in us. But the Holy Spirit's work in us with this spirit of wisdom and revelation, it leads us to have a disposition marked by the wisdom of God, understanding the knowledge of God, and knowing God intimately. And so, the word Paul uses here for wisdom, we've already seen it once in this chapter, it has to do with answering the big questions of life. Uh, where did we come from? How did the cosmos begin? Is there any meaning or purpose in life? Is history, does history have a point? Is history linear, like with a beginning, middle, end, and a, and a final goal? Or is it just cyclical, like the circle of life or the wheel of Dharma? Like, it, does history have any meaning? Uh, this idea of wisdom in Greek has the idea of answering the huge questions of existence. It answers the questions of being. And Paul already used this verse, this word, back in verse 8 to talk about wisdom that answers those big questions as coming to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, sent to us by God the Father. And then he also uses the word revelation. The word revelation here means disclosing something that's hidden and in order to better understand it, flip, I hope it's probably just a page over, to Ephesians 3. I want to illustrate what Paul uh, means by revelation by showing you how he uses the word in Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 3, 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation... There was made known to me the secret, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you will understand my insight into the secret of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the means of the gospel. Though there were, so, so let's take this secret that Paul talked about that's now been revealed. In the Old Testament, there are many prophecies about God sending a Savior into the world, Messiah, Israel's Messiah, and there are even a few prophecies about God sending His Holy Spirit into the world, Joel chapter 2, for example. Ezekiel 26. Uh, there's even a few of those. But nowhere will you find in the Old Testament any inkling of the idea that God will include Jews and Gentiles in a new spiritual entity called the church. Uh, that was not discoverable by any human inquiry or observation. And that's really what this word revelation is getting at. For an American audience, maybe we could say it this way. Science and observation will only get you so far, there are some things we will never be able to observe or discover on our own. God has to speak and reveal them to us. Science is great, but revelation is greater. It gives us even knowledge that we couldn't discover on our own. And I think to understand this prayer request, the key cross-reference here is verse 5. Uh, look again at verse 5. Uh, uh, the secret of Christ, which in previous generations was not made known to the sons of men, has now been revealed to us. How? How do we receive this revelation? Uh, through the holy apostles 
and prophets in the Spirit. So the Spirit of God revealed wisdom and truth we can't discover on our own through the apostles and prophets, and it's now been recorded for us in the Word of God. So here's the question. If the wisdom and revelation we need that Paul's praying for for the Ephesians, if it's been recorded for us in the Bible, and we can pick it up and read it for ourselves, then why is Paul praying for a spirit to be given, uh, a spirit of wisdom and revelation to be given to the Ephesians? The reason why is because what they needed and what we need now is to understand the wisdom and revelation of God better. We need to grasp its full significance, and we need to do a more consistent job living in light of it. Let me illustrate for you um, what I mean by that. For those of you who were here last week to hear Mark's amazing sermon on Psalm 22, when you came in last week, did you already know all those things that, that He taught us from Psalm 22? Were you in the middle of the sermon, were you like, phew, I'm so glad He finally quoted the way the author to the Hebrews uses Psalm 22. I thought He wasn't going to get there. Is that what you were thinking? No, none of us were thinking that because we don't know that about… If we… Okay, yes, if we read Psalm 22 for ourselves, we can tell there must… It must be some kind of messianic prophecy because the psalmist talks about piercing my hands and my feet and casting lots for his clothing. But beyond that, could you make heads or tails of Psalm 22? Did you know how to outline it? I didn't. I read it before you got up to preach, and normally when I get the privilege of sitting in the pew and, and being taught, normally when we open up the passage and read it, it's, hard for, it's really hard for me to turn off my pastor switch, right? So usually I'm like, oh, if it were me, I'd use this illustration. Oh, I really hope he says this. The congregation needs to see this in this passage. I picked up Psalm 22, and I was like, I got nothing. Uh, I'm, and I, I was all ears to see what, what Mark said. And that illustrates this point. Just because we can read it, it doesn't mean that all of its significance and relevance just pops off the page to us at the first read. We need a spirit of revelation and wisdom to be given to us so that we understand it and can embrace it. Uh, in a word, we need what English-speaking theologians have called illumination. If you were to reduce the spirit of wisdom and revelation Paul is talking about here into one uh, word for the English-speaking church, in the English tradition, it would be illumination. Il by illumination, we mean the work of the Holy Spirit giving understanding whenever the Scripture is read or heard. Think of it like a stained glass window in a cathedral. Uh, if you've ever been able to see the stained glass windows up in the National Cathedral in D.C., or if you've ever had the privilege of uh, going into one of the cathedrals in Europe, uh, and, and you've seen those, you know how beautiful stained glass can be. But imagine for a moment that you were standing in a cathedral in the dead of night, and all the lights were turned off in the cathedral. There was no lights. There's also no candles inside the cathedral. The only light that you had was the ambient light of the city that surrounds the cathedral. And that ambient light was coming in through those stained glass windows. Well, if that was the case, you could still probably make out the pictures that were being depicted. You could still probably interpret uh, what biblical story this stained glass window is trying to portray, and yet uh, the stained glass window would have no impact on you. It would be gray and flat and lifeless. It would be dead to you. Uh, 
But if you were to walk into that same cathedral the next day on a, on a sunny day, then that stained glass would come to life for you. The vividness of the colors would almost hurt. The images would almost be lifelike. The images would be the exact same images you saw the night before, but this time they would become beautiful and attractive to you. They would move you. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in illumination. He turns on the light behind the sacred Word so that God's Word not only becomes understandable, but also beautiful and desirable to us. In his concise theology, J.I. Packer defines illumination this way, illumination is not a giving of new revelation, but a work within us that enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is there before us. Sin in our mental and moral system clouds our minds and wills so that we miss or resist the force of Scripture. God seems to us remote to the point of uncertainty, and in the face of God's truth, we're dull and apathetic. The Spirit, however, opens and unveils our minds and tunes our hearts so that we understand. As by inspiration He provided scriptural truth for us, so now by illumination He interprets it to us. Illumination is thus the applying of God's revealed truth to our hearts so that we grasp as reality for ourselves what the sacred text sets forth. Did you notice the key expressions that Packer used there, right? Illumination helps us grasp revelation. It helps us love revelation. It helps us, it tunes our hearts to revelation. It helps us grasp uh, as reality for ourselves God's truth. Yes, by the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit helps our intellects to understand, but He also goes to work on our wills and our affections so that we embrace Scripture instead of resisting it, so that we love it instead of treating it like it's a big threat to our autonomy and independence from God. Uh, so, if that's what we need, if that's what Paul saw the Ephesians needed, then let's stop here, take a time out, and uh, from our plunge into verse 17, and uh, have our eyes up and look again at the context of where we are in Ephesians. Paul just wrote a paragraph filled with praise to God for His glory in His eternal plan of redemption. And now what he's praying for is that the truth he unfolded for the Ephesians wouldn't have been written in vain and just bounce off their hearts as if it wasn't beautiful, wasn't relevant, didn't matter. He's praying that their, their eyes won't gloss over uh, when they're viewing how amazing God has been to us in salvation. And what Paul's prayer adds up to is this, uh, what we need is having a true and loving knowledge of God, because that's where this wisdom and revelation leads to it. It leads to having a true knowledge of God. Look again at verse 17. Paul prays that the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's the goal. That's what the wisdom and revelation are pointing to. Uh, this kind of wisdom affects a knowledge of God. This kind of revelation discerns the beauty of God and why being reconciled with Him matters. But we have to carefully define what kind of knowledge this is, because in the New Testament, there are, there's more than one kind of knowledge. Let me explain. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus has this interaction with a demon who has possessed a man. Mark records, 
Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, just think about what that demon said. That demon had an accurate knowledge of Jesus. He had a more accurate knowledge of Jesus than the scholars of Jesus' day. And saying, you are the Holy One of God, that is a proper theological confession of who Jesus is, but we know, we know this. We know because it's a demon. We know that He doesn't love Jesus. We know this demon isn't reconciled to God, uh, doesn't love God. And so, there is such a thing as a demon knowledge of God that knows true, accurate things about who God is, but doesn't love God. That's not the knowledge we're after. That's not the knowledge that Paul is praying for for these Ephesians. Here's another glimpse of a knowledge that Paul isn't talking about. In Romans 1, Paul writes this explanation of Gentiles who've never read the Old Testament. They've had no access to God's Word uh, or, or the law of Moses. And he says, even though they knew God, they knew God through creation, through His law being written on their conscience. Later on in Romans 1, he says, God made His existence and His eternal power evident within them. He placed it in their hearts, just as He's put eternity in our hearts. And so, in fact, they knew God, even though they knew God. They didn't honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Paul says they knew God, but they had darkened, uh, a darkened understanding. They knew God, but they had foolish hearts. They knew God, but they don't thank Him or give uh, any kind of glory to Him. So, again, that's not the kind of knowledge that we're after. So, what kind of knowledge is Paul talking about then? Well, obviously, in this context, it's a knowledge that embraces and values and loves and celebrates everything Paul has just said about the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in our redemption in verses 3 through 14, but the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John gives us a more succinct definition of what the true knowledge of God is. In 1 John 2, 3, uh, the Apostle John says this, "'By this we know that we have come to know God if we keep His commandments.'" And then in uh, 1 John 5, 3, he says this, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. So, putting those two verses together, notice a couple things. First of all, the knowledge of God that we're after leads to a person agreeing with God's law and wanting to keep it and actually doing a decent job uh, keeping it, but also in John's mind, the true knowledge of God and loving God are parallel, right? Because they both end in keeping His commandments. The, the fact that if you love God, you'll keep His commandments. If you know God with the true knowledge of God, you'll keep His commandments. What that does is in the New Testament mind, that puts truly knowing God and loving God as parallel, as synonymous. We could even say, I think we could say, that loving God and the true knowledge of God are like overlapping realities in the New Testament. And so then the question becomes, well, why is this knowledge of God, why isn't it happening for more human beings? Why, why don't we see more people in the world having this true knowledge of God? And Paul explains why, Ephesians 4, 17, I, this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as uh, unbelievers also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, 
because of or due to their hardness of heart. In that verse, Paul gives a cascading diagnosis of the big problem people have. The symptoms are they're walking in futility of mind, they're darkened in their understanding, they're excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is within them. But if you keep reading, you find out ignorance isn't the diagnosis. The ignorance itself is a, is a symptom of a deeper disease, and the deep, deeper disease is this, because of their hardness of hearts, which then defines this ignorance that is a concern as willful. There is a hard heart behind this that has access to true knowledge of God but doesn't want it. And so, what we're after, if, if, if we could say that this knowledge is not any of that kind of knowledge, what we're after at Grace Fellowship is a true knowledge of God that leads each one of us to see God for who He really is, to accept Him as He is, and to love Him and obey Him. And what I want to point out here is that even though I've used these other passages, the Mark passage and the Romans passage, uh, to, to sort of, and demons and people who are willfully uh, ignorant of God because of their hard hearts, even though I, I've used those as foils against which to contrast the true knowledge of God, notice that again in our passage this morning, Paul is praying this for Christians. According to Paul, even born-again people need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Uh, even born-again people need to be given a spirit of greater wisdom and revelation that leads to a true knowledge of God, which implies what I'm arguing this morning is that his prayer request implies that one of our biggest problems, even for those of us who is born again, is that we don't know God as we ought. We all need to grow in knowing God lovingly, worshipfully, and obediently. Why is this so important? Well, it's important because, uh, first of all, if we don't know this knowledge, we won't be able to praise God, which was the direction that Paul was moving in in verses 3 through 14. We won't be able to praise the glory of God's grace to us in His plan of redemption. But there's a functional reason I also want to point out to you. Uh, if we don't see this about God. If we don't have the true knowledge of God, we won't know how to live. The Apostle Peter explains it this way in 2 Peter 1. God's divine power has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory. See, if we don't have this spirit of wisdom and revelation that gives a true knowledge of God, we won't know anything about how to live and please God in this life because knowing how to live and please Him comes through the knowledge of Him. So, what should you pray for for your brothers and sisters? Well, I believe we should pray for more than just a change in their circumstances, more than just the healing of their bodies. We need to pray for their souls. When it comes to what needs mending, remember, diagnosis leads to cure. The Ephesians, if you remember, were a mature group. Uh, they got more of the Apostle Paul's attention than any of the other churches that he planted. Uh, later on, and I know it's approximately 30 years later, but later on in Revelation chapter 2, uh, Jesus sends a letter to the church, and again, they look like a fairly mature group, but even then, Paul sees within them the need to have a deeper knowledge of God. And if I may be frank, 
what your family and friends and church needs is to grow in the true knowledge of God, a knowledge that embraces Him and loves Him and obeys Him. Such a, such a knowledge would go a long way towards fixing the spiritual foolishness you keep seeing that you're so anxious about, right? Uh, and it would go a long way to, towards curing the disease that's leading to those symptoms. The disease is ignorance of God, and a true, loving, vital, loving knowledge of Him is the cure. So, by way of application, I want to leave you with two exhortations this morning. First of all, pray regularly for your brothers and sisters in Christ. We need your intercession. And as you pray for us, pray that a spirit of wisdom and revelation that leads to a true knowledge of God would be ours. Uh, as you pray for us, balance your intercessions for us with thanksgiving for the manifestations of God's grace you've already seen working in our lives. And then second, uh, on June 4th, we're starting a new adult Sunday school class through the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And I would say, outside the Bible, uh, this is the book that's helped me know the most in my quest to know God and commune with Him. Uh, this is just an excellent, excellent book. And if you, you're, you're not a part of our adult Sunday school class, I want to invite you to come. Uh, it's at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. But also think about this for your loved ones, for your family, for your friends. If you already are attending Sunday school, uh, invite family, friends, others to our study because it's a rich, rich study uh, that helps connect the dots between Scripture and a life lived where we know God and embrace Him for who He is. Well, let's pray.